Before we get to the podcast, I wanted to make sure that you knew that my online knee course with Lenny Macrina is on sale for $200 off this week. If you want to learn exactly how to evaluate and treat the knee, you're going to love our comprehensive course where we cover our clinical examination, exercise progressions, and specific information on ACL, meniscus, patellofemoral, articular cartilage, osteoarthritis, and so much more. Plus, you can earn a ton of CEU credit. The course is on sale this week for $200 off. Head to MikeReynolds.com slash knee for more information and to sign up today. On this episode of the Sports Physical Therapy Podcast, I'm joined by Dave Sherman. After graduating PT school from Boston University, Dave received a PhD from the University of Toledo and is now doing postdoctoral research work in the area of arthrogenic muscle inhibition. In this podcast, we're going to talk about AMI and his recent research publication on neural drive and motor unit characteristics after ACL reconstruction. But don't worry, we're going to discuss what the clinician can do with this information as well. Welcome to the Sports Physical Therapy Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Reinold from MikeReinold.com. Hey, Dave, welcome to the podcast. Really excited to have you. Thanks, Mike. I'm glad to be here. Not everybody knows this. Some people do know this about podcasts, but Dave and I have been talking for months and he's had a lot of exciting things uh, going on in his life that's been keep- keeping him a little busy. But we've been really excited to try to get together and have this podcast episode. So it's 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 great to finally have you on. Um, I, I've been following a little bit of your research lately and you've been producing some really good stuff. Um, why don't we start by, you know, maybe filling the listeners in a little bit if they're unfamiliar with some of your work, but why don't you give them a brief information, just like on your background, what you're currently up to, where you're at. Um, I think that'd be a great start. Yeah, definitely. So I'm a uh, physical therapist and athletic trainer. I trained at Boston University, uh, graduated now with my DPT almost 10 years ago, and then, uh, moved down to Port Worth, Texas. We worked, uh, we worked, my wife and I, she, I was also a sports PT. She did a residency at Texas Health Sports Medicine, Ben Hogan at the time. I was fortunate enough to convince them to give me a job so they could keep her around. Uh, we stayed there for about five years. Um, you know, five years later, 2018, we're looking around and, um, I kind of had this, this research bug. I was frustrated with some of my uh, clinical outcomes at the time. I thought, you know, we were doing well applying science and, um, and still I was falling short of my patient's expectations and decided, okay, there's something more to this that I should go back and look into. Did kind of a nationwide search and ended up in Toledo with a PhD program that was well aligned with a mentor, um, and like the questions, uh, looking at the questions that I wanted to answer. So I just wrapped up that PhD after five years, um, or four, sorry, four years in Toledo and I've been in Boston, back in Boston ever since. So. Currently a uh, postdoc at Boston University in the Division of Rheumatology. That's in the School of Medicine. And I study um, essentially arthrogenic muscle inhibition in neosteoarthritis. Which is amazing, which obviously has tons of carryover to other pathologies and stuff. But I, I, I think that's, that's such a great uh, way to do it. Um, yeah, you know, there's a ton I want to talk about, obviously, to your expertise. Um, but I do know that sometimes people have this question. So I thought you'd be a great person to ask this to. But like, what what made you go back to get your PhD after you were a treating PT? I know you kind of alluded to it a little bit there, but like like I know a lot of PTs are maybe considering that or maybe they don't completely understand that process, but that's like in their their thought process. But why don't you tell us a little bit about that and like what went into trying to go go back to school? You know, did you yeah. really love school that much? Like what was it that you, <laughs> you wanted to go get your PhD? 
Yeah. Uh, well, that's funny. So in PT school, I think I was the only one in my class that actually liked the evidence-based practice course, you know, just thought <laughs> it was like more interesting than everyone else. That's awesome. So that was something. And, uh, and so it was all, it always seemed like a possibility. Oh, maybe there's something to this research thing. And then at Texas Health, um, you know, it's a, it was kind of a clinical scientist's dream. We had a, a clinical scientist full time. Uh, that worked there, Craig Garrison. He was running the research lab at multiple different clinics. We had force plates in the floor, motion capture cameras in the clinic. Um, so I was being a research assistant, recording data, range of motion, strength um, on participants that were also my patients. And so that kept kind of the research bug alive. And then as, as I mentioned, um, in that environment, we're applying what seems like the, the best evidence that the stuff that's currently coming out, and I'm still falling short with my outcomes with what I think my patient should be, be able to get back to. So that's really the motivation is I have these lingering questions surrounding, you know, what's going on in the nervous system. You have this, um, 50% of your, your census is patients with ACL injury. Uh, they have this quad knockdown that you just can't seem to address. And, um, it's, it's not my, my strength program. At least I don't think it is. Uh, and they're still falling short with that persistent muscle inhibition. So um, that's the motivation to go back. I, I love it. And, you know, you're helping all of us at such a higher level with that, which I think is really, really great. But um, arthrogenic muscle inhibition, you know, what you've essentially said, you're you're focusing your career on, at least at this point, until you figure it out and move on to the next thing, I'm sure. But, you know, this is an, excuse me, this is an enormous thing that we face in rehab, right? You, like you said, even yourself as a clinician, you're, I don't know what they're, you know, were you disappointed what it was, but like, you know, you're doing your best, you're applying all the principles of, of basic science, strength and conditioning stuff. We're trying to get these people stronger. They're just not getting stronger. And we, we feel like we're failing them. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, it's tough. And, you know, on a, on a past podcast episode with Terry Grindstaff, we talked a little about some of these neuromuscular consequences, but, you know, I'd, I'd be kind of curious from, from your perspective, like, you know, why do you think this is so prevalent? Why do you think like, and I know you've been putting your head down trying to figure this out. Like, you know, why do you think this, this muscle inhibition after surgery is so common? Um, the reason is it's a, it's a reflex. I mean, on the neurological level, you have pain and swelling in a joint. Um, there's a change in, in sensation in the periphery. Uh, your nervous system is going to integrate that change and, and respond. Um, I try to explain this as it's really no different than touching a hot stove. You have your agonist that's reaching, uh, now inhibited, and your antagonist pulling back facilitated. Uh, similar phenomenon is what's going on in the quadriceps. That's why it shuts down. I mean, you have you can have a patient the day before a knee surgery, they have a meniscus tear in their knee, they can get a nice quad activation. It's the actual going in and having the meniscectomy that creates inhibition. Um entering into the joint, little uh, pain, little swelling, and the, the quad is is now inhibited for the next few hours, days, months, depends on the pathology. Um, so the, the thing to me is that a clinician cannot treat this unless they can assess it. And um, it's really hard to see the nervous system in clinical practice. I mean, there are some, some techniques like you could use EMG, uh, whether or not that's valid for measuring uh, reduction in activation is, is a, uh, broader discussion. Um, but that's, that's the reason why I focus on, on AMI and the, and the scientific lab as opposed to in the clinic is, it's hard to assess and know who has it and who doesn't and to what extent, um, when you're out in the wild in the clinic. So. Yeah, for sure. And, 
you know, you recently just published a, a really great paper, um, kind of that, that, you know, tried to dig into this a little bit. You were looking at neural drive, motor unit characteristics after ACL reconstruction in particular, which again, hopefully we can extrapolate to other types of injuries and, and stuff here. But uh, none of us want to struggle with regaining strength, right? None of us want to deal with the long-term issues that may come from that, like maybe even, you know, failure of, of the procedure or, you know, not returning to their activities or sport that they want to get to or worse, like away down the road, right? I, I, I'm starting to have friends now at my demographic that had ACLs 20 years ago that are now getting total knee replacements. And I, hmm. I think we're young, right? We're PTs. We treat no total knee patients. I don't see a lot of people, you know, 45, 50 years old getting total knee replacements. So, um, so let, so let's talk a little bit about that article and let's kind of shift gears there and, and, and kind of explain that. I, I think it was a really great article. It was, it was in depth, dude. I'll give you that. It was, um, that was a, that was a detail. Yeah. That was a thick paper. I loved it. I read it. I took notes. I'm highlighting it. Um, I love that stuff. You did an amazing job kind of like expanding on that. So, um, I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes for the listeners that want to read it. Like I didn't in detail. It was awesome. But tell us a little bit about why you wanted to conduct conduct that study and really what you looked at in 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 that actual study. Yeah, so uh, thanks, and um, it's a very exciting study for me. That was over three years of work. Now, now finally published and out uh, for the world to see it. So appreciate you highlighting it here. Um, the history and like the motivation behind the study is um, arthrogenic muscle inhibition first described, as far as I can tell, almost a hundred years ago called arthritic muscle inhibition described in cats uh, with osteoarthritis. 25 years ago, Chris Ingersoll and Ty Hopkins um, are talking about this as it relates to sports pathologies like ACL injury and meniscus injury. Um, and they're starting to do some of the first neurothys studies, uh, quantifying the amount of like quadriceps knockdown. And really hypothesizing like why that happens on, on a neurological motor output level, like what's happening to the motor neuron pool or the actual motor unit firing behaviors, um, et cetera, right? Our muscles are, are neurological effectors, right? They only respond to the input that they get from the nervous system. We sought out in this study to do a kind, kind of a comprehensive assessment of neurophysiology in the face of new technologies, um, in, in the laboratory. And so the, the primary one in this study is what's called decomposition EMG. So electromyography, it records electrical activity of a muscle uh, during a contraction. And by using like a higher density array, multiple different electrodes in a small space, you can uh, break down that signal into individual motor units uh, and get a sense of how fast they're firing, when they turned on, when they turned off, and how large uh, their firing amplitude was. So that's kind of the, the outcomes that we present in the study. We also collect some of the more traditional um, neurophysiological uh, outcomes being Hoffman reflex, which is a degree of um, basically your tendon tap reflex, how excitable your muscle is in that uh, rudimentary spinal level loop. And then uh, central activation ratio, which is how much of your muscle capacity as a percentage of your, of your capacity can you activate during a, a maximum voluntary contraction. And so uh, we took uh, the sample here is uh, patients with ACL reconstruction. I think there are 14 in this study uh, in the controls. And um, we, we put them through this array of tests. We had them trace some force. We decomposed their, their muscle activity. Um, and, and 
that we can characterize in the sense of a normal or abnormal spinal reflexive loop. And with the respect to the amount of muscle capacity that they can activate, what are their motor unit behaviors uh, and, and how are they actually going about conducting a muscle contraction on the neural level? So that's the motivation for the study. Yeah. And, that, and, and uh, again, amazing clinicians like myself, and I like to consider myself like with a past, you know, history of some clinical research and stuff. Uh, it's this level of in-depth research that really makes such huge, significant impacts on our profession and then eventually our patients. Right. Um, so, you know, again, like, you know, people like, you know, obviously if Dave hasn't, hasn't convinced you yet that this, this was a lot of hard work, three years putting together such an amazing project, you should be ridiculously proud of getting this thing out there so we can all learn from it. So, you know, again, thank you. Um, but you know, my next question is going to be like, okay, so what did you find? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So what? So, um, the, uh, the big findings are that the individuals with ACL reconstruction in their involved limb, the motor units fired more slowly, um, at any given recruitment threshold. So overall in the muscle contraction, their motor units are firing, um, more slowly, which means that they're using more of that like type one endurance um, muscle fiber, right? The, the, the less fatigable, uh, slower firing um, fiber type. This was in the context of normal activation. So they could activate the, the same proportion of their muscle capacity, normal, what's called central activation ratio in normal spinal reflex excitability. So we, um, we recorded those in all the participants and the, those were no different between group or limb. And they also had muscle weakness. So, um, that reduction in firing rate tends to explain the, the weakness in, um, in the quadriceps. Because we also quantified the capacity, muscle capacity, the percentage of motor neuron pool. Um, we also kind of hypothesized, although it's, it's difficult to prove with the limitations in technology that there are individuals with ACL reconstruction are also activating fewer motor units. So they're just not turning on as much motor units. And therefore, we would conclude that there's less available. So um, whether it's the inhibition process or the time since injury um, or muscle weakness, they've actually like reduced or catabolized some of their their muscle capacity over the years, uh, which would not be a good thing. (laughs) Correct. I agree with that. (laughs) Uh, So, you know, when I was reading the study, one of the questions I had for you about this, too, is that. I think you noted in your subject pool that had ACL reconstruction that they had asymmetries, they had weakness, correct? They did, yeah. So the the involved limb was um, was quite a bit weaker than the contralateral limb, uh, as well as the healthy control limb. I don't know the exact numbers, but the way I like to think of this is, I think it's easy clinicians to to record strength and normalize the body mass. Uh, three, everyone throws out the 2.99 or three newton meters per kilogram. The ACLR group was below that threshold in, in this gotcha. study. So I, what I wondered, right, was if we looked at people, because you had a wide range of, you know, how far out from surgery they were. Um, I wonder if we looked at people that didn't have that asymmetry and that restored their strength to, you know, w- would you assume that these findings would be essentially reversed, right? The fewer and slower motor units like would, would be different. Is that, you know, and, and, you know, I guess the million dollar question is going to be, you know, well, why are some people like that and some people aren't, right? But is mm-hmm. it, am I thinking about that correctly? Yeah. So um, we did not like have the numbers 
uh, quite frankly, to look at like who was driving that, that effect. Um, and we have a follow-up study that I'm working on now with similar methods, uh, actually more neurophysiological methods, uh, looking at similar outcomes. Uh, we do see, a, 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 we will replicate these findings, fortunately. Um, but you're right to say that these, this, this sample was far away from surgery. So these, uh, the recovery of the spinal reflex has, has happened as we know happens after about three months. Um, and their, their kind of recovery of muscle capacity has, has maybe plateaued and that they're not going to get any stronger. They're out of rehab. They're playing sports. Um, and we see this effect. So I think the question is like, if somebody has recovered full strength, uh, do they show the kind of detriments in their motor neuron pool? Uh, I can't answer that question, um, but to me, what's more applicable to the clinician is when you still have the patient in in your hands, and you can actually potentially impact these longer term consequences as we recorded in this study um, with interventions. That's kind of what I would like to take away from the study, at least in the short term, is definitely need to investigate for sure, for sure. Yeah. Um, so, all right, so help the clinician then. So how do we take this research? How do we apply it in practice? Right. And maybe we, maybe we uh, use two scenarios. Right. And I know this is a little bit beyond the scope of your paper too, but conceptually, like, how do we deal with this? Like, how do you work with somebody, you know, acutely following an ACL reconstruction? We say that they have pain in their swelling. They have muscle inhibition. What do you think's going on? What's your goal here? What would your suggestions for clinicians to do for interventions for somebody like that? We'll be back after a quick break. I hope you're enjoying the podcast episode. If you want to learn more from me, please check out my website, MikeReinald.com. In addition to all my great articles, videos, and podcast episodes, I have a ton of online CEU courses, as well as my inner circle online mentorship and community. Be sure to subscribe to my free newsletter where I'm always sending you great info and exclusive perks and discounts. Just head to MikeReinald.com to get started. Thanks so much. Yeah. So I think uh, about the natural history of, of um, arthrogenic muscle inhibition in this case. So natural history being um, why is it happening and how does that change over time? Um, early on, pain and swelling are the catalysts for muscle inhibition. And so a clinician that's seeing somebody immediately after surgery or even before surgery, after their injury, getting ready for surgery, should look to reduce uh, the catalyst. So that's pain and swelling. So um, interventions that do that are, are uh, focal joint cooling or cryotherapy that's icing down the joint, the on the joint before exercise. It's a little counterintuitive, uh, but we know that that can restore uh, that spinal reflex excitability and restore access to muscle capacity. Um, that's what we would call it an open and exploit strategy. So you're basically allowing them this therapeutic window of access to their muscle by numbing the pain or reducing the swelling. And then you can, you can exploit that in, in rehab. So for the next 45 minutes, their joint is cold. Um, do your quadriceps exercises, uh, work on, on open, open chain knee extension, uh, use NMES, use biofeedback, uh, throw everything you have at them during that, uh, during that therapeutic window. Uh, so that's, that's one intervention that kind of masks the, unmasks the inhibition and allows them access. And then I think of, uh, others like NMES and biofeedback as having different mechanisms, right? You want to send all you can, all your neural power 
to the motor neuron pool to prevent atrophy and retrain the quad. Um, so cryotherapy affects one thing, and then NMES is forced use, right? You're, you're forcing the muscle to contract. You're throwing an electrical stimulus uh, through it. Uh, it's non-volitional, but you can still uh, use those motor units. And then biofeedback uh, is more of a top-down approach. That would be giving them a signal uh, that they can they can try to amplify. I'd try to increase either EMG activity um, or increase torque if you're if you're using like a Tindac or something more clinically like a dynamometer. Um, that's a cognitive like throw more resources, try to make the muscle contract harder. So all three of those things, like take those three approaches, are really going to optimize your your uh, immediate post-op phase. And then like more emerging study, which I, I, I do think um, has a lot of evidence at this point is, is the metabolic cascade. Uh, and Lindsay Lepley is doing really exciting work here and whether eccentrics, early eccentrics or, or tools like blood flow restriction can address the metabolic cascade of, um, of post-operative muscle atrophy. Which, which is great. And, and, um, you know, the, the internet social media has, uh, shamed anyone that has said the word ice in the last eight years. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, so it's, it's good to see, you know, and we try to tell everybody, it's like, this is a very simplistic viewpoint that we're having here. There's pros and cons yes. to everything, right? So it, it's good to hear that there is, uh, you know, some beneficial use of ice because, you know, we, we still use it for some of its pros and, 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 you know, I've taken it away at other points as well, but I love that. Um, yeah. you know, one, th one thing I've always kind of educated and I'm, I'm curious from your perspective, you know, maybe if you can tell me if I'm barking up the right tree, if I'm doing this right, but, um, we've kind of shifted to the same thing, some cryotherapy beforehand for the same reasons. And then, um, um, we use NMES when per a person is having a very difficult time with volitional control, but as soon as they tend to have volitional control, we then almost switch to biofeedback to try to get them to have better control. Um, am I doing that well? Should I do anything different or, or better? What, what do you think about that thought process? If you're using EMG biofeedback, then you, you can't use them at the same time, right? The, the correct. NMS yes. would set, saturate the signal. So that's correct. Um, you don't have to discontinue NMES. And, and some people would say that you shouldn't for, for many months after surgery. Um, but you do want to apply both interventions. So, okay. Um, NMES units at this point are, are pretty affordable. Send them home with a, our, a patient. And at our clinic, we send uh, NMES units home with people who are post-op. We have them do it twice a day uh, during their during their Therex home exercise program, um, and then bring it back for for clinical sessions. Um, and and then biofeedback is harder to recreate in many cases at home. So um, you can you can use your time in the clinic with the patient uh, to focus on that. You, you really, I think, want to throw everything you, you can at them. So makes sense. I like, it, yeah. you know, in the sports world, I like that approach, right? Like there's, you know, <laughs> why, why not? Right. We want, we want to get these, these people better as fast as possible. So awesome. Well, throw everything you can that's evidence-based, I should say. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> good, good answer. I like that. <laughs> um, all right. So tell me now, how would your perspective change here? Now we have somebody, let's say it's a few months out or more than a few months out, I should say chronic persistent weakness. Maybe they don't have pain and swelling at this point, right? Because I think if they do have pain and swelling, we we probably still use the same thought press, process to an extent. But now this is the person that comes to your clinic, right? They're a few months out. Maybe they did rehab elsewhere. Maybe maybe something happened, whatever. But they're still super weak, have terrible volitional control. What do you think is going on here now in this chronic setting? And how would your interventions change for that person? 
Yep. So from, again, the natural history, you're now getting months out, the kind of catalyst of inhibition being pain and effusion are resolving. Um, the nervous system is integrating this change. And uh, what we see in now systematic reviews is that people farther out have cortical-driven inhibitions. So the muscle activation failure, the muscle weakness is more associated with what's going on in the brain than what's going on in the spinal cord. Um, and for that reason, you can probably discontinue interventions that target the spinal cord, being cryotherapy or TENS if you're using that, and focus more on interventions that would address the cortex um, or the, or the top-down control. So for that, you're going to apply biofeedback, you're going to apply NMES still if it's appropriate, um, and you can do things like like eccentrics, eccentric overload, because that uh, is like a throw everything you have at this from a neural standpoint to try to control that eccentric um, contraction. Uh, so that's that's really the the big changes there um, when when you're looking at uh, longer longer out, is you just say that the spinal level control or the spinal level interventions are probably less indicated now. Um, that being said, we don't know when you look at a patient in the clinic. What's going on in their nervous system? That's one of the limitations of, of applying any of these interventions in the first place. You're kind of just looking at them and where they're at in the recovery and, and, and assuming kind of what their neurological activation might be. Um, and I've seen anecdotes and videos on, on Twitter and LinkedIn and stuff of people saying, hey, Dave, this person's you know six months out of surgery. I iced them and their strength went up 20%. So... Whether that single individual still had spinal level inhibition, it's, it's hard to say. We can't know. So look at the patient in front of you. Um, a lot of times, if you do this like pre-post intervention, like just film their muscle contraction or get a, get a MVIC before and after an intervention, you'll know whether or not it's having an effect. Um, just that, that simple like A-B test pre-post. If it doesn't, then you don't have to do the intervention. If it does, then you should use it. Sure. And that, to me, that's actually amazing advice for so much we do in our profession right there. That's the, you know, the assess, reassess model that sometimes a lot of people just forget about, right? You know, they're, they're so tied up with, you know, what they want to do and what's next that they don't, they don't, they don't look at basics like that. So I, I think that's fantastic. So, yeah. um, Dave, awesome stuff. This is going to be super helpful for clinicians. I know that this has helped me, right? You've, You've taught me some stuff on this and obviously reading your, your article and your past stuff that you've published has been great. So I'm going to put some links in the show notes to some of Dave's work, especially this, this current article that we're talking about, because I think it's a, it's a really important one that hopefully will have an impact on our profession for some time and hopefully stimulate people like Dave to do more and more research in this area so we can get to the bottom of this. Right. Um, but Dave, before I let you go, quick high five at the end, five quick questions. Five quick answers. Just kind of want to hear a little bit more about you. Teach everybody a little bit about your thoughts here. But first question, what are you currently doing? And like this question's never fair, basically, to the PhDs, by the way, because yeah, you guys have very finite topics you're working on. But what are you currently working on for your own professional development right now? Um, yeah, it's a good question. So I, you know, am changing in the midst of changing populations um, of interest. I, I worked my PhD at and ACL reconstruction. Uh, now I study knee osteoarthritis. I did a postdoc in between about technology development for for uh, patients with with uh, neurologically driven muscle inhibition after stroke. Um, so I'm just kind of learning and trying to to find consilience in the literature and in the nervous system about what's going on um, 
what are the, the multiple different avenues for driving muscle inhibition and, and what applies to which interventions when. Um, I'm also trying to like enjoy the postdoctoral period and that I'm not a faculty member and just relax a bit, which is, which is new for me. So, uh, you know, read, read a few books here and there and, uh, and just enjoy time with family. So. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. You, you put your work in the last 15 plus years. Uh, it's, it's, it's time to spend a little, little yeah, time for sure. yourself. I love it. Thanks for recognizing uh, that. Yeah. It's important. <laughs> Absolutely. You got my support, but, um, what, what, what's one thing you've recently changed your mind about? I think that, that no one is coming to help me translate my, my research. Um, and, and that's like runs counter to being on this podcast. So thanks for inviting me. But what I mean is <laughs> like in, in the academic world and in, in physical therapy research specifically, um, we call it like we have researchers and we have clinicians and what the, the way they would treat this in industry is they would have a researching development department. Right. Right. And there's no development in academic research. So when I publish something, it's up to me to market it and disseminate it, um, teach and engage with clinicians, uh, and to innovate and to like develop the technology that's going to make the difference or else we're, we're stuck with that same like 17 year gap between us publishing a study and clinicians, um, you know, picking it up and applying it. <laughs> right. I'm not, I'm not placing the blame on anyone. I think it's just like this huge disconnect between our worlds and industry. We look at technology and like, especially artificial intelligence right now is a, is a hot topic. They have the development side of things, right? They're paying people, they have people. And, uh, and I think that that job, as far as I can tell, falls on me if I'm, I'm in academia. So. <laughs> that's right. That's, that's why research and academia go so well together. You do the research. Then you, yeah. you put it into everybody's mind. So, you know, no yeah. pressure, but like you've got to make sure you have good methodology and, and you're doing a good job. You're not giving false, uh, misinformation out there to the students. <laughs> you know, well, that's, and that's true. So the development part of things is if you have to, if I have to take my research and put it into a technology that people will adapt, adopt, they need to actually see that it works. Right. So if my research right. is flawed, the technology will never work. It's a nice kind of litmus test to see, you know, is it, is it worth it? For sure. Can, can my research interests be actually marketed and translated to, uh, to the industry? Yeah. Awesome. So that's uh, one thing what's I'm, your, I'm realizing. Yeah. Wait, what's your favorite piece of advice you love to give, uh, students? Um, I it, just talk to people. People want to talk to you. If you have a question, read an article, reach out to them. Um, say hello, introduce yourself, uh, talk about a problem you're working on. Um, and yeah. And, this is a, a great profession. It's, it's done a lot of great things for me and, um, yeah, network connect. Don't be afraid. I love it. I think Dave just gave you all a, uh, open invite to email him by the way, but that didn't, I didn't want to say, oh, but uh, sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah, if you, you, you can go on our website, you can, you can, anyone can just click a link and schedule a video call with me to talk about any AMI interventions. Yeah. That's, that's, that, that's Absolutely. amazing. That's pretty much what I did for this podcast episode. So yeah, it, it pretty much worked. That's how Dave and I met, but. Uh, awesome. Uh, what's coming up next for you, Dave? I know you've alluded to some new research, but what else you got brewing? Um, just focusing on family time. I think like I just had a son, uh, but about four months ago. So I had some, some job applications out for faculty appointments. Uh, it's kind of the season for that. So we'll see if anything, anything hits. And in the meantime, just, uh, continue the postdoc grind. That's amazing. Uh, I'll put some info in the show notes, but where can people find out more about you and your work? I'm on uh, X and LinkedIn 
And then uh, people can go to live4pt.com uh, to check out some of the blogs I have on these topics. Or as I said, uh, find a link to schedule on my calendar to, to, to meet up and just uh, problem solve about clinical cases or, or whatever. That's great. I think you're the first person I know to embrace calling it X, by the way. So, um, yeah, you know, I figured I'd go for it. It's been a few months now. (laughs) I mean, it's, it's accurate. So everybody else is wrong still. So uh, yeah, I love it. That's, that's, that's what, that's what makes you, you Dave. I like that. (laughs) Awesome. But, but Dave, thank you so much. This was awesome. Love sharing your stuff. Love learning from, from some of your research. So please check out Dave and some of these, um, these great topics that he's working on. And take him up on that offer. He he wants to talk to you and 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 help. So anything you can do. So um, thanks again, Dave. Thanks for coming on the podcast today. Cool. Yeah. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. And please share this with your friends to help spread the word. It would really mean so much to me. Please check out all my online courses, articles, newsletter, and more at mikerano.com. There's always a ton of great perks for my newsletter subscribers. And also be sure to search for my other podcast, The Ask Mike Reinold Show, where my team of physical therapists, strength coaches, and I answer your questions. See you on the next episode.